Because when I was singing that hymn, you know, and it talks here about um, there's a God that rules above with hand of power and heart of love. And if I'm right, he'll fight my battles. But see, we live, of course, in a country where a lot of times people have said that God is on their side, right? You know that Dylan song? It's a very profound, you know, social critique, I think. Uh, And yet, it's easy for people who are in comfortable places here in America to talk about how it's bad, any kind of idea that God would fight battles for somebody. Because we've heard that used in really really maybe wrong ways. But if you're somebody... In most of the world, the idea that God loves you would not really make much sense at all if God wasn't a God who fought battles and fought for righteousness. So it's a very interesting thing. Like for a lot of Christians or a lot of people in, in sort of our society and students at Belmont, the idea that there, that there is judgment is kind of an offensive thing and a barrier and a hard thing to get over. But all I can tell you is that concern, that problem, is very much shaped by the way you've been raised. And that if you grew up in a culture like the Hebrews, 400 years enslaved to the Egyptians, you might think about it differently. And of course, it is fascinating how the black church always uh, resonated with the story of the Exodus. The Bible resonates with the story of the Exodus. It's repeated all over the place as the great victory of God, the great deliverance of God, really the most incredible victory of God until the death and resurrection of Jesus. It, it gets you know, picked up on all over the place. And yet, I don't know if we care that much about it. I don't know if we resonate that much with the feeling of longing what it's like to be enslaved for 400 years. We just get upset that God disagrees with people, you know? So I think as we read this passage, it's worth thinking about. Um, The things that bother us are probably the exact opposite things that bother a lot of Christian brothers and sisters around the world who live in very different situations. And it's hard, I think, for us to put ourselves in the place of the Hebrew slaves and think about why this is such good news. So here we go. We're going to look at chapter 5 of Exodus. This is right uh, where, where we are. Last week, I, we did the burning bush, how God had called Moses. So what happened after that, before the section I'm reading now, is that God had called Moses, and then Moses went back, and he told his father-in-law, I've got to go, and then he goes. There's a weird situation on the way that I won't even begin to explain to you, where it says that God wanted to kill Moses. Um, it turns out that Moses wasn't circumcised, and it was very important for God's spokesman to care about what God had revealed, and God had revealed that his covenant people needed to be circumcised and show that, that sign and follow God in that way. It's a weird story, granted. That's why I'm not preaching on it tonight. But, um, but then what we get into now tonight is this section where um, it, Moses begins to confront Pharaoh as God had told him to do. Now Moses went first to Israel and told them, God spoke to me. He's heard you. He sent me and Aaron to speak to Pharaoh. And Israel says, great, great. And that's where we pick up the reading here in Isaiah 5. Israel's on board. Moses is pumped. God's told him what to do. He's there now. And it says here in chapter 5, verse 1, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. That's kind of an irony when you Realize what's coming, if you know what's coming with the the plagues. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Go back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw from themselves. Right, and then he makes their work even more difficult, right? And the people complain about it, right? And then they go and they meet with Moses and Aaron. Okay, down to verse 20, jump down there. The Israelites, these are the people that have been complaining that Pharaoh's made their work harder. They meet Moses and Aaron, who are waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, that is the, um, the other Jews, the Jewish leadership, the Lord look on you and you judge Sorry, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. They're basically cursing Moses and Aaron because they've made the work harder for them. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. The next verse. But the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. Now, as the story goes on, we get down to chapter seven and God gives Moses the first sign to give to, to show to Pharaoh, the first sign. He does actually a couple signs before he does the plagues. Here's the first of the signs. The Lord said to Moses, this is Exodus chapter seven, verse one. See, I have made you God to Pharaoh. I know the NIV says made you like a God, but the like isn't in the Hebrew. See, I have made you God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourself by working a miracle, you shall say to Aaron, take your staff, cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. 
For each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And then the first plague. And the first plague is the plague that turns the Nile River to blood. And in this one, again, God tells him to declare that I am the Lord God doing this. And I'm doing this so that you may know that I am God. And then Moses touches the staff to the water and it turns to blood. That's the reading of God's word that we have tonight. Let me pray for us and then we'll talk about what does this mean? (laughs) What are we to learn from this? Lord, we do thank you for your word. We pray now that as we um, that as we spend some time here in this section of your word, that you would teach us, teach us who you are and what you're, what you're like. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I, one of the things that's so obvious when you read this section, now, I hate that, I, that we didn't have time that I could read five, six, and seven. I know that's a lot. But one of the things that jumps out, and I hope you got it when I was reading the sections that I read here, is that God is obviously in control of what's going on. There's no sense that God is sweating, trying to figure out what to do. Um, He does things like he tells Moses, all you have to do is touch your staff into the water and it turns to blood. No sweat. It's easy to do. Uh, Here's what you do. You go in and you talk to Pharaoh and tell him, I am going to do this. I am the sovereign one. I command him to let my people go. God's sovereignty is very strong in the book of Exodus and in this section, right? His sovereign power is everywhere. He even has power over Pharaoh's heart. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. And yet, when you see this power so clearly described in the book of Exodus, I think it makes us wonder why does God, the sovereign God, take so long to deliver people who are suffering and crying out to him? The Israelites were crying out to him for 400 years. When God finally seems to do something about it, he seems like he has all power at his disposal. And in fact, he does. And so the question is, why does God take so long to deliver the Israelites? And why does he do it in such a strange way? If he has all power, why does he go through plague after plague after plague after plague? Ten of them. We're going to talk about the tenth one next week and talk about Passover and all that. But why does he do it this way? I think the fact that he's sovereign shows that there must be intentionality in the the fact that he takes so long and then in the way that he does it. And, And I hope that we can unpack some of that. I think this is a section where we're supposed to slow down and try to figure out why is God doing this? What is he hoping to teach us? And I think that's really the heart of this. God does not just want to deliver Israel. If he did, he could have done it in a much more efficient, in a much quicker way. God is revealing who he is by what he does, very intentionally. The first thing to understand, if you want to know what's going on in this passage, is that this is a showdown not between Moses and Pharaoh. It's not a showdown between Moses and Pharaoh. It is a showdown between God and Pharaoh God. See, in Egyptian understanding, Pharaoh is a God. He's not just the king. God is saying, I am going to stand against this God. You see it all the way through this. 
God, Pharaoh God, has set himself in opposition to the God of the universe, of Israel, the God of Isaac, Abraham, and Jacob, right? God, Pharaoh, the false God, has set himself against God's plan and against God's purposes for his people. This is not just a story about an underdog defeating the powerful king. It's not about that. As a matter of fact, Moses isn't the hero of this story at all. Moses doesn't want to be there. He told, he told God when God called him uh, in chapter 4, look, I can't even speak well. I stutter. God said, okay, well, I'll send Aaron with you. He'll talk on your behalf. Uh, okay, well, you know, make, goes make a couple more excuses. Finally, he says, he begs God. He says, please send someone else. Right? Moses is not the hero looking for the opportunity to prove his mettle. He's not. God is the hero. This is a story about God taking care of his own. You you see little hints of this. Back in chapter 1, the way the Exodus opens up, it says that the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied and filled Egypt. It's a a definite connection to Genesis, where God had told his people, this is what I made you for, Adam and Eve, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So what God is saying is, my people are doing what I want them to do. And yet Pharaoh says, that's not what I want. I don't want them to multiply. There's too many of them. We're going to start killing all the Hebrew boy babies. We're going to start throwing babies into the Nile. And that's not just a wicked king. It's satanic opposition to what God has made his people for. This is a much bigger story, what's going on here. Moses gives commands. Pharaoh gives commands. This is God versus God. God is the one who shows himself to be all-powerful because he uses somebody like Moses. But again, Moses is not the hero. What's really going on here is God is looking out for his son. So why do I say that? Well, back in chapter 4, there are these words, and I put it on the outline for you. God is looking out for his son, and he's making a way for his son Israel to worship him. Listen to these words in Exodus 4, starting at verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Now, that's an important verse for understanding what's going on here. God is not just wanting to flaunt his power. God is saying, I am going to exercise my power on behalf of my firstborn son, Israel. And if you, if you stand against my son, you stand against me. And that's a very serious thing to do, right? But of course, Pharaoh does stand, doesn't he? Pharaoh claims that he has the absolute right to do what he wants, when he wants, with God's own people. God says, this is my son. Pharaoh says, no, they're my slaves, and I'll do what I want with them. Moses comes and says, God says to Pharaoh, 
let my people go. Pharaoh, on the very day that Moses says that, to flaunt his power, makes them have to make bricks without straw. You're going to go find your own straw, right? He's definitely flaunting his power. He's saying, this God is of no concern to me. I don't know him. That, and it, it's the way that he, the way he talks here is so, is so mocking. When he says, who is this God? Who is the Lord? He says that in verse 2 of chapter 5. Pharaoh is not asking for information. Pharaoh is saying, sort of with a snort, who is this God? Who is this God? I don't know him. I don't know him. He's of no reference, no relevance to me. I do what I want. I'm God. I'm God. Right? Now this really is, in a lot of ways, I think, sin unmasked. Often we don't see sin this ugly, this bald. Usually usually it gets covered up. It's helpful, actually, in places like this to stop for a moment and think about what is the essence of sin? When Christians say that the world, that sin has entered the world, when the Bible says that, what does it mean? What do we think has went wrong? Here's the heart of it. Mankind who was made to worship God and love him and serve him has instead set itself, set themselves against God, hardened their hearts and said, I'm going to be God. I'm going to do what I want to do. All sin is setting ourselves up in opposition to God. All discontent is birthed from believing that you know better than God. That if you were God, you would do a much better job running things. The essence of sin is to want to replace God. To replace God. That's the essence of sin. We see it way back in the garden where God told Adam and Eve, all the trees are for you to eat from, but of this one tree, don't eat. Now, why did God say that? Did he just want to be a cosmic killjoy? No, what God wanted to test them to see whether they would find and submit and embrace the fact that they're creatures made to be in relationship with God, or would they refuse that and instead desire to usurp God? So he gave, them, he gave them a prohibition that in some ways made no sense. Because when they looked at the tree, the Bible says it looked good to them, good to eat and pleasing to the eye. And at that point, they had a choice. Whose word, whose word was sovereign? Is God, does his word matter? Or does their own word matter? And they decided God's word doesn't matter. God needs to fit himself around them, what they believe, what they want to do. That's, the, that's what it means to be somebody who the Bible would say is not a Christian. Somebody who's a sinner is somebody who says God has to find his way around the peripheral of my life, but he's not the sinner. I'm the sinner. Right? And sin is not really seen for what it is until you see that. Until you see it as opposition and usurping God's place. One of my favorite quotes, so this is not a, not a pleasant quote, but one of my favorite quotes is from John Bunyan, the author of A Pilgrim's Progress. And he, he says it, I think, as 
as, as straightforward as you can say it. He says, sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, and the contempt of his love. What makes sin, sin, is the fact that it's always doing something and saying something to God. It always is. That's why, you know, after David kills uh, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, and then he gets confronted by Nathan the prophet, and in Psalm 51, he finally repents to God, and there's this curious phrase there. He says, against you alone have I sinned, O God. It's not that David's saying, well, I didn't do anything to hurt anybody. No. What he's saying is, now I see sin for what it is. When I see sin as it relates to you, it's so huge. It's like, it's like there's nothing else to see. This is, what, this is what sin is about. This is what Pharaoh is about. But this is more than a showdown. It's more than a showdown. The signs and the plagues are revelation, not just raw acts of power. Like I said, Pharaoh mocks the Lord in chapter 5, verse 2. Who is the Lord from his lips is not a request for information. It really is a dare. Who is the Lord? Who's the Lord? He doesn't matter. He doesn't matter. Remember I talked last week that when Moses comes and says, the God of the Hebrews speaks to you, Pharaoh would laugh. The God of the Hebrews. Oh, the God of the slaves? The God of these people who are now my slaves? What kind of God is a God who lets his own people be enslaved? Of course, the, the real question is, you know, what kind of God would willingly, would willingly make himself a slave? Would willingly make himself one who would be bound, who would be hung up on a cross where he didn't want to go? That's the real question, but that's not Pharaoh's question. Pharaoh's question is, who is the Lord? What kind of God is a God who's a God of slaves? This God is irrelevant to me. He commands no respect from me. Why would I give attention to a God of slaves, right? And again, this is the heart of sin. (laughs) This is the heart of what we say to God all the time. God, eh, what kind of God is God? Who is this God, right? Now, you know, the hard thing about this passage is this is Pharaoh in a hard-hearted condition. And of course, when you read this passage, you find there are places where it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. But if you read carefully, you also find about an equal number of times it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. How do we make sense of that? You know what? I don't know. I know that the Bible teaches clearly that God is sovereign and that human beings are not robots. And somehow both of those things fit together. I think Exodus is one of those places where it's showing us that. There's not a nice, easy solution to this. This is one of those situations where God seems to, seems to provoke, in a sense, Pharaoh to have his purposes accomplished. For hardening the heart of Pharaoh fits within God's purposes of redemption. And that's difficult for us to embrace. All I can tell you is, I don't, I don't really understand how all that fits together either. But 
as I stand before you as a minister of the gospel, it's not my job to defend this like I invented it. I didn't make this up. I wouldn't have made it up this way. It's one of the reasons, actually, that I have great faith in the veracity, the truthfulness of the Bible. It doesn't bear the marks of being edited so that all the difficult, embarrassing stuff is removed. But again, the this, this, this stuff that's difficult for us, this seems so unfair to somebody who's being oppressed. They're like, finally, Pharaoh is getting what's coming to him. Finally, there's a reversal of fortunes. Justice is actually being worked out that Pharaoh would be hardened, that Pharaoh would be judged, that Pharaoh would be punished. And so before you throw it out and say, I can't believe in a God like this, I just ask you to consider whether you could believe in a God who looked at the suffering of his people and said, well, you know, I wish there was something I could do about it, but, you know, I'm a gentleman and I would never violate anybody's free will. I don't know. It's just not a God worthy of worship. God does not explain himself here. There's no chapter I can go to in the Bible that will tell you how this all resolves in a way that's going to make you happy. Sorry. The question is, it gets down to, are you going to believe what God says or are you going to substitute your version? (laughs) Right? Well, here's what God says. He says to Pharaoh, you don't know who I am? You're going to know who I am. He tells, he tells um, in chapter 7, verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Moses is told explicitly uh, in verse 17 of chapter 7, when you put your rod onto the Nile to turn it into blood, say this, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. You see? God is not just delivering his people by raw power. He's going out of his way to reveal this is who I am. I'm the Lord. And these signs, you see, and plagues are actually direct challenges to the beliefs of Egypt. If I had more time, I could show this to you. But there's parallels for almost every one of these plagues with particular gods in Egypt. For instance, the serpent, the snake. You've seen pictures of King Tut? Do you realize that What he has over his head is what? The head of a cobra. The snake is the sign of Egypt's power. It's the symbol for Egypt's power. The first sign that God does is to turn a staff into a serpent. And of course, the the, Egyptian sorcerers are able to do that by their own arts. I don't know how you make what, what we're supposed to get from that. But the fact is, God's serpent, God's power triumphs over the power of Egypt. That's the point of the first sign. The Nile, the Nile is one of the most important gods in Egypt. It's not just a river that they depend on and they like to swim in. It's a god and they worship it. And God says, the Nile, the great mighty Nile, all I have to do is touch it with my finger. And it turns to blood and it's rendered worthless and useless for all the things you depend on it for, food and water and life, right? God is directly challenging the gods of Egypt. But he's also showing that he has a purpose for creation. Now, this is a little more subtle, but follow me here. When Pharaoh opposes God, when Pharaoh opposes God, the way God responds is basically by undoing creation. You see it in a number of ways. The things, the relationship 
that creation was supposed to have to mankind, a, a, a fruitful, beneficial, serving relationship, has now gotten turned upside down. When Pharaoh hardens his heart against God, the whole creation starts coming apart at the seams. One of the plagues is darkness. And the darkness is, is a direct you know, turning upside down, God created light out of darkness. But now, as Pharaoh sets himself in opposition to God, light becomes darkness, right? Uh, God basically takes things of nature and arms himself with nature to basically bring about the purposes that he has worked that will one day set nature free from its bondage to decay, In Romans chapter 8, Paul says that the whole creation is frustrated, waiting for the day of redemption, when Christ comes back again and sets all things right. And this story is part of God working to that end. This is part of God bringing about the redemption of all things and the, the setting creation right. God is taking the creation, he's using it, arming himself with the creation, So that one day, the creation itself will be made what it was supposed to be in the first place. Right? There's a purpose of creation. God is sovereign over creation and is using the creation now to further his purposes of redemption that one day will include even the creation itself. Right? What else do we need to see here? Again, this is hard for Westerners, but there's, without a doubt, one of the major lessons of this passage is the enemies of God's people are the enemies of God. And, and you just need to sit in that for a minute. God takes it personally when his people are persecuted. You remember Paul on the road to Damascus? He gets struck by a light and he hears a voice. It's the voice of Jesus And Jesus says to him, do you remember the words? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Me. You're persecuting my people. You're dragging them off into jail. Maybe even have them put to death. You're persecuting me. God takes it personally. But God is patient. See, you, I think you would miss the point if you read this passage and you forget this is 400 years into their enslavement. God is patient. He takes it seriously when you persecute his people, but he's patient. This is after 400 years. God made his people wait 400 years to be delivered from this bondage. He brought 10 plagues. He didn't fix it on the first one. This is all manifestations of God's patience, even though his own people are suffering. I hope you understand this. God had told Abraham, actually, years and years and years before this, that Israel would be in bondage for 400 years in Egypt. And do you know why he said that would be? Because the sin of the people who lived in the promised land had not yet reached its full measure. So God says, I'm going to let my people suffer because of my patience for those who are my enemies. So lest you so quickly criticize God for being one who judges his enemies, God actually says, my people can handle the suffering if it means my patience 
even from our enemies, can be made manifest. And that's not just an Old Testament idea. Actually, in 2 Peter, God's people are crying out, why have you not come back again? God's people says, do you know what Peter says? He says that with, a, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and the Lord is patient, not wanting any to perish. The reason that you are crying out for God to come back again and make things right, the reason that he hasn't done it, Peter says, is because he's patient, not wanting any to perish. So, you know, I think it behooves God's people to think about others, even in the midst of their suffering. And that's a hard thing, because one of the things that suffering does is it tends to make you completely focused on yourself. But there's a lesson in here about God's patience. But I think the great question really is, why does God take the side of these fickle, murmuring Israelites? I mean, good night. Israel curses the deliverer that God sends. The deliverer that God sends, right, charges God with committing evil and not really knowing what he's doing, <laughs> right? So why is it that Israel gets, gets saved and Egypt gets judged? I, that's a pretty bold thing to say to God. God, you've done evil. And you've not, you've not delivered these people at all. That's what Moses says. It's a pretty strong thing for God's people to say about God's deliverer, curse be upon you, right? But God's love is not based on how wonderful these Israelite people are. It's based on his love, his choice, and his covenant. As a matter of fact, he'll, he'll have to keep telling these people this. Later, um, as they're wandering around the desert at one point, he's going to say to them, you know what, Israel? Do you know why I chose you? I chose you because you were the smallest of people, and you were the most stiff-necked. I chose you because you were the most insignificant group of people, and you were the most stiff-necked people I could find. That's why I chose you. <laughs> Isn't that great? Don't, if you ever meet a Presbyterian who is proud of the fact that God chose them and thinks that that means that they have a reason to pat themselves on the back, tell them to read the Bible. It's not what it says. It's not what it teaches, Right? God's love for his people is in spite of Pharaoh's hardness of heart. God's love and plan for his people is in spite of Moses' hot-headed temper, charging the Lord with evil. It's in spite of the people's unbelief. And I think in this we see a beautiful picture of how God will rescue his people from more than their slavery. Because you realize the way they respond when things don't go well, gives you a little understanding of what's really going on in their heart. They don't just need to be delivered from bondage. They need to be delivered from their suspicion and their hatred of God himself. Now, how's God going to do that? Well, it's going to take a lot of wandering around the desert, actually. But the, the key is, the key is the cursed deliverer. Moses is the cursed deliverer. But he's not the last cursed deliverer that the Lord will send, right? God will one day send his son Jesus to be cursed by the people he came to save. The king of the Jews, the crowd will shout out, crucify him. Now they know what the Old Testament says when they say that. The Old Testament says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And yet still, Jesus' people that he came to save say, curse him, crucify him. 
right? And that's exactly actually what Jesus came to do, to be the cursed deliverer. Paul puts it this way in Galatians chapter 3. He says, the law, you're right, the law says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. God delivers his people through a cursed deliverer. And he's going to do it again. And God specializes in bringing deliverance when all seems lost. Uh, this is amazing. It's, when, it's not till Pharaoh hardens his heart, makes it even more miserable for the people of God, till Moses has become completely dejected and charged God with evil and incompetence, and Israel has cursed the deliverer that God has sent. It's not until all that stuff has happened that God says, now's the time. Now I'll show you what I'm going to do. Look at that. Right? Did you see that in chapter 6, verse 1? Now's the time when I'm going to show what I'm going to do. Now you'll see what I'll do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out. Right? God specializes in delivering when it seems that things are absolutely impossible. What a picture of the gospel. What a picture of the gospel. I wonder where you've lost hope. I wonder where you need to hear this word. Now is the time. It seems like there's no possible way that God could bring deliverance here. It looked good when Israel was was ready to go and they were believing Moses and Moses was fresh from his conversation with God. He seems to know exactly what he's supposed to go, supposed to do. That's when it seems like, all right, this is going to work. Finally, it's going to happen. Nope, (laughs) that's not the time. That's not the time. The time is when it looks like everything has completely fallen apart. But now is the time for God to act. But I suspect, just like in this story, God's acting will not necessarily take the form that we expect or maybe even the form we want. Because God's deliverances often take a confusing form. There's one other lesson I want to to just mention. I know I've went for a while, but let me just make this last point to you. There's there's a message in here about our role in God's kingdom. And it's in this chapter 7, this interesting phrase. uh, I mentioned it when I was reading, how the NIV and some other translations say that God tells Moses that you will be like a God to Pharaoh. But actually in the Hebrew, it's stronger than that. God tells Moses, you will be God to the people. Now, that's a, that's a very interesting thing. Uh, it's, it's amazing. What God is saying is, I can work so thoroughly through a human instrument that this human instrument will be God, will represent me. It will be like my presence. That's a very amazing thing. God is saying that he can so work so thoroughly through his people that they will be God to the watching world. It's an amazing privilege. It's also a pretty huge responsibility, isn't it? And you think about, gosh, what? I don't know about this. Let me remind you, Moses is not a good guy. He's a flawed deliverer. He just charged God with evil and incompetence. And then God, in the very next chapter, says, you're going to be a God to Pharaoh. What? God's going to use the guy who charged him with evil and incompetence, and he's going to make him God to Pharaoh. 
That's a pretty amazing thing. If you think that God can't use you, shame on you. (laughs) Come on. If he used Israel, and here's the thing. The New Testament is full of the same kind of idea. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we are his ambassadors, as if God is making his appeal through us. God is saying that he still uses his people in this way. Now, does that mean that Moses and that Christians are supposed to be some kind of superhuman people? And the answer is absolutely not. As a matter of fact, if you go back to the creation, you find that what God made his people for was that they would be in an intimate relationship with him and would so represent him that people that would see him, see us, would know him. That's what it means to be an image bearer of God. That God would, God has set it up in such a way that people would come to know him by seeing us. Now that's a pretty, that's a pretty awe-inspiring kind of idea. But what it means is when God tells Moses that you're going to be God to Pharaoh, what he's saying is I'm actually making you to what it means to be truly human. You're not superhuman, Moses. This is what humans were made for. And this is what he means when he says to us, when he calls you to be his witnesses, it's like this is what you were made for. This is what it means to be truly human. So what you see here is that deliverance comes through a cursed deliverer. And when you get brought into this kingdom, God says to you, look, I'm about the purpose of making you into being truly authentic human beings. This is what I've made you for. This is what I've redeemed you for. Now, this was a hard lesson for Israel to learn. We're going to see as they wander through the desert. But God has always had a plan for more than just his people. He's always had a plan for the nations to use his people to reach them. We're going to see more of that plan unfold. We're going to find out more specifically, how is it that God can love a sinful people and commit himself to them? As we look next week at the Passover, um, one of the most beautiful pictures of Jesus in the whole Testament. And that's where we go next week. Let me pray for us.